Well, good morning. It is very good to see each of you. It's good to be back with you. I'm used to seeing Andrew up here on Wednesdays, uh, not on a Sunday morning. And the reason you have an open house coming up. Okay, there is there. We wanted to get him here before the open house uh, because there are times when we have families. I know the Walkers have their children at Ambleside, and we wanted to have him in before that open house so you could have a touch point as you prayerfully consider your options for the training of your children. Uh, my wife and I had a great time away, a great time of rest and enjoyment, and we praise the Lord for that. It is good to be back here with you, and our hearts always want to be with our children and with our church family. Uh, so I get to parachute right down into the middle of a passage that Pastor Sean has already been teaching through. And I'm going to ask you to open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to consider the internal lawfulness of kingdom citizens. The internal lawfulness of kingdom citizens. We're in a sermon series on a single sermon. We need to be reminded that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up, up a mountain and he sat down and he taught his disciples a single sermon. The text defines the recipients, the disciples, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. A disciple, we've already covered this, is a follower learner. Every disciple should become a disciple maker. So what is a disciple maker? Somebody who encourages others to follow Jesus. And I hope you've done that in the last seven days. I hope there's been someone, whether an unbeliever or a believer, that you have encouraged to follow Jesus more. The text defines the subject. The very first sentence he speaks includes this phrase in verse 3. The kingdom of heaven. The primary subject of Christ's earthly teaching was not his cross, though it involved the cross, but it was the kingdom of you're going to see that when he interacts with the Pharisee in John chapter 3. He, Nicodemus comes to him and Jesus says, unless you're born again, you will not enter where? The kingdom of God. The idea, the big idea there is the kingdom. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is a declaration by the King of Kings as to what citizens in his kingdom look and act like because of their relationship to him. And so you say, how do I know I'm saved? I mean, I go through a struggle of assurance. How do I know that I'm truly born again or not? How do I know that I don't just have some good evangelical Christian doctrine up here and I haven't been transformed here? You know, the Sermon on the Mount begins to answer that question for you. So let's look at that this morning. We are in a section where Jesus references six legal texts. Okay, chapter 5, verse 17 all the way to 48. Jeff read a portion of that for us this morning, but this entire section begins in verse 17. Six times Jesus uses the phrase, you have heard that it was said, or it was also said. Six times he's referencing the law, the Torah and its interpretation as it was traditionally received. He follows that phrase by saying, but I say to you, by the way, this was acceptable teaching. A rabbi could make the law narrower and never be faulted for it. But what Jesus was proving is that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, but in a way that, that you don't even understand yet. So he draws attention to the lawfulness of the law, 
but he moves to show the limitations of the law as a standard for righteousness. I want you to hear that. The lawfulness of the law stands, but it is limited in that it cannot give you the righteousness you need to enter heaven. We need to hear that. Because sometimes in American evangelical Christianity, we think, we've been taught by implication and by example, that all we have to do is check the boxes. Sing the right thing, wear the right thing, go to the right places, not go to the wrong places. And Jesus is going to say, I came not to abolish the law. The law has a lawfulness about it. But the law is limited in that it alone cannot give you the righteousness you need to be accepted by the Father. The hinge verse, look at, look at verse 20, chapter 5. Because this is, this is the platform that he uses to launch into these six legal statements. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you even know just a little bit about the scribes and Pharisees, you will know this. They were the religious elite. Nobody outdid the scribes and the Pharisees when it came to external righteousness. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he goes to teach his disciples. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not even going to enter heaven. And the question that we're supposed to ask is, what kind of righteousness exceeds that kind of righteousness. That's what's so staggering about this. And and here's the beauty of the teaching. The righteousness that allows you to enter the kingdom is not simply understanding and adhering to the law. Or the scribes and the Pharisees would be first in line. This makes sense even globally. Let me illustrate this. What makes a person a citizen of a country? Or what, how could you become a citizen of another country? You can't just, you shouldn't be able to just walk over a border and say, I'm now a citizen because my geography changed. Many of you have traveled internationally and you've arrived legally at an international airport and you legally spent time in a country, but you were never a citizen of that country. See, this makes sense globally. If you, were to, if you were to arrive in Madagascar with the right documents and speaking French and Malagasy, here's, here's news for you, you're not a citizen. Citizen typically, typically comes down the lines of birth or descent or naturalization, and each has a process. And do you know the kingdom of heaven is not, is not that different People don't become citizens of America just because they obey our traffic laws. Yes, they should obey the law, but obeying the law does not make them a citizen. When it comes to the kingdom of God, it has to do with birth. That makes sense, doesn't it? Matter of fact, a Pharisee whose righteousness we're supposed to exceed came to Jesus at night And he asked a question and Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again. There is no citizenship in heaven without birth. You don't get there by keeping the law. No one will ever get to heaven by keeping the law. 
I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He looks back at Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler, wealthy, successful, respected. And he says this, unless one is born of water and of the spirit. There's a transformation that has to take place. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Citizenship in the kingdom has to do with birth and a righteousness that is beyond law keeping. For Jesus to make that point very clear to us, he, he, he cites these six legal texts to show the greater righteousness. A righteousness, and this is where he's targeting, it's a righteousness of the heart. It is an internal righteousness because sinners can keep the law. There are exceedingly sinful people who have never murdered anyone. And they're not citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There are extremely moral people who have never committed adultery, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the point that Jesus is going to come down. And by the way, I want you to understand this right at the front end. He is not keeping up condemnation through this teaching. He is taking six legal texts, making them more stringent to lead you to a a particular truth. So you might feel the weight of condemnation, but remember what John chapter 3, same chapter where he, he tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, it said that the Son did not come into the world to what? To condemn the world. No, so this teaching is not to heap up condemnation. It is to free you and to deliver you and point you to a righteousness that exceeds religious elites. That's what you need. That's what, that's what I need. Jesus is making the implications to lead us somewhere and to display our need. This makes sense. Later on in this gospel, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says this. Because here's the point. It's not about the law as it is about something greater than the law. He says the scribes and the Pharisees, same group of men, sit on Moses' seat. That means they sat as authorities of the law. They could exegete the law. They would be behind a pulpit in their day telling you exactly what the law meant. Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. This is amazing. Listen to what he says. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Is that shocking? With all the condemnation and critique that Jesus brings down upon the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this. No, listen to what they're telling you. But then he says this. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Why? Jesus says this. For they preach, but do not practice. Jesus moves then to charge these legalists with lawlessness. Do you see the connection in the words there? Here are people that are saying we are righteous because we keep the law. And Jesus comes and he charges them with lawlessness, saying you haven't kept the law. So Matthew twenty three thirty eight he says, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others. But within this is that internal target that Jesus has in mind. But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is not opposing the law but showing that the customary practice of law in Jewish culture is insufficient. And you know what he's doing by extension? He's showing us how our customary practice of the law in our American culture is also inadequate. And to the point that we 
that, that there, there's friction that builds up against that truth is to the point that we need to be reminded of this truth. So let's consider the internal lawfulness of the kingdom. I know Pastor Sean covered three of the six, and I want to go back and look at those quickly. Jesus begins in verse 21 by citing the crime of murder, the sixth commandment in the Decalogue, in what we call the Ten Commandments. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But here's the problem. We can feel quite smug, murderously hating someone, ruining their reputation, killing what others think about them, and having hateful, murderous thoughts in our heart. And we can feel quite smug and lawful because we haven't what? physically murdered them. We can excuse our diabolical hate and yet pretend we love God because we have not committed a felony. And you know what Jesus is teaching? It's pretty, it's pretty staggering. That in the spiritual kingdom, that the intention of murdering and the desire to murder someone, even though you would never carry it out, in God's eyes, is just as sinful as if you had. By the way, that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because while they were being religious and wanted to make sure they were keeping the Sabbath, they were plotting to kill Jesus. And God comes in and with His heavenly justice system brings it down so very narrow so that we, so that we respond who can, who can live that out? Jesus presses beyond, beyond the actual behavior, beyond the act of murder, specifically punished by the law, to the kind of heart that desires murder. The angry heart that would murder if it could get away with it reflects the same spiritually dead heart as one who carries out the crime of murder. In a sense, you would say the heavenly court will come down in judgment upon sins of intention. How do we apply the gospel to that? Thankfully, Jesus died not only for real crimes and real murderers, but for the murderous thoughts that remain hidden in our hearts here this morning. And the good news is this. Jesus died for those too. And kingdom citizens who have truly been transformed by the gospel will actually begin to live without even murderous intentions and desires within their heart. So he moves on to another specific application. He moves on to adultery and divorce. It's really two combined into one to make a point. He quotes from the seventh of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And of course, the, the legalist will say, but I never have, if he hasn't. Right? That's beyond me. That's above me. That's what the legalist would say. But look at what he says in verse 28. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he takes this, this law that's in the Decalogue and he makes it more narrow. And the present tense exposes a continual unrepentant choice. Everyone who looks at and keeps looking at with the intention of committing an illicit sin with her has already committed it. It is the continued gaze that Jesus calls out. He's not referring to passing attraction 
or the human human kindness's ability to recognize something that is beautiful, even in an individual. What he is what he is calling out is a deliberate harboring of desire for illicit relationship. And I want us to hear this. I want I want us to to note Jesus' focus. Because contrary to many men's excuses and contrary to some of the Christian counseling I have heard in my lifetime, Jesus places the responsibility for lust on the person doing the lusting. Not on fashion or on circumstance. Not that those don't matter, but Jesus isn't faulting the culture. He is calling out the man who in his heart is not repenting of a continual gaze at a woman. And men, we need to hear that. Because it's not about the law. It's about the heart. And so when Jesus is teaching, He holds men accountable to this. And He calls them out not to condemn us, but to free us and to give us life. Since sexual sin often leads to divorce, that is the the line down which Jesus takes His application. And He presses beyond the actual behavior, beyond the act of adultery, to the kind of heart that desires to commit adultery or that would, if he, if he was guaranteed, he would never be caught. It's a great sermon that Jesus preached, isn't it? Here's the good news. Jesus died not only for the overt lust that leads to adultery, but for the continued gaze of lust often hidden in our hearts even though we have never acted on it. Jesus died for a continued, unrepentant lust that is connected to pornography and other sexual sins that we do not turn from. The good news is Jesus already paid the penalty for those. Right? So what is our confidence this morning? As you were sitting in here, and you're not even through the first chapter of Jesus' three chapters, as Matthew divides it, of his sermon, and he is laying down this law and making it narrower. He moves to oaths. Oaths are often attempts to mask deception. They can also become irreverent and blasphemous. The point is, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and let people trust that. For example, your character should not demand that you swear on your grandmother's grave. You should never have to do that. That's irreverent. Nor should your character demand that you swear to God to get somebody to believe you. That's blasphemous. The issue is telling the truth because God witnesses every word we speak. So he says, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He even calls out the Pharisees for not swearing by the altar, but the gold on the altar, which reveals a whole other level of sin in oath-taking of materialism. Now we're into a new section on retaliation. And I know this feels heavy, and I think it would have been heavy to the initial hearers of this sermon as well. It would have been heavy to his disciples who had been taught all along through their life that these by the scribes and the Pharisees that keeping the law was enough. And therefore, they were accepted by Jesus because they could check all the little law boxes. And Jesus saying, absolutely not. There are two parts to this. First, the desire for exacting justice. And second, the desire to protect what is rightfully ours. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The first illustration challenges the desire for exacting justice when you legally can. An eye for an eye never meant that a person could immediately pluck out another man's eye, but that a person could take that person before the judges and the law would be, you, you removed his eye, therefore we will take one of his eyes. It's the law lex talionis, where the, the offense is going to be met with the same, with, with the same consequences. There's also a limitation to the law. In the Old Testament, the law was in a sense of grace. For instance, you couldn't take an eye for a scratch. Or if you cut off the tip of a finger, you couldn't remove his eye. You can't take two eyes for one eye. And you certainly can't even take a life for an eye. So there was a limit to this law. So it's even amazing that Jesus, he's not removing it. He's not abolishing that law. That law serves as a great legal ethic in so many countries, what he is saying is if you're a true kingdom citizen and there's an internal lawfulness in your heart because you have chosen to follow me, I'm going to say this. Don't demand that. Don't expect or seek for exacting justice. He's not disagreeing with the Old Testament or saying it's not a good standard, but he moves us towards a righteousness that exceeds the law. That's what he's doing. These laws made a point. My right eye is not less important than your right eye. But, but how do you show the love of God? How do you show the mercy of God in this kind of setting? We don't seek retaliation. This is very difficult in our culture. I was brought up by Christian, God-fearing parents who taught me to retaliate in some ways. And after I had permission from my dad to do that, soon enough, I was in a fight at the bus stop because I had dad's permission now to retaliate. I know that's not what my dad meant. Okay, we're taught this in America to not defend ourselves, to not retaliate is un-American. But you see how this greater righteousness pushes against not just a Jewish culture, but an American culture. It makes sense, an eye for an eye. You know what doesn't make sense? When followers of Jesus do not seek retaliation. And when that doesn't make sense and you have an opportunity to preach the kindness and the love of Christ, all of a sudden the gospel is magnified. The second illustration challenges the desire for protecting our honor. He talks about this slap. By the way, this is not, this is not a life-threatening hit. doesn't mean you can't defend yourself. But a slap, though not life-threatening, was dishonoring especially in a culture where Rome had already taken up occupation and they were the foreign invaders. And now you have the opportunity of a foreign invader showing incredible dishonor with a slap. In that case, myself and many other people, we want to return what for a slap? A knockout punch, right? So you, you meet and Jesus says, no, you're going to indulge the oppressor further and you're going to offer him what? Further dishonor on yourself. I say to you, Jesus says in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. This does not mean on levels of crime or abuse, but on your personal honor, 
Don't resist it. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What this demonstrates is that we do not value human honor above God's honor. Craig Keener wrote this. Even in a a society obsessed with honor and shame, a disciple must be so secure in his or her status before God that he or she can dispense with human honor. Such a person need not avenge lost honor because this person seeks God's honor rather than his or her own. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And there may be someone whose heart protests against this. I'm still going to defend my, my honor. And do you know, I want you to just pause there for a second and consider this, that Christ was dishonored for you. Christ was shamed for you. Christ died for you. And He has set us an example, Peter says. He moves from that to defending our personal rights. Look at verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The Old Testament law protected even poor people from having their cloak taken from them. The reason is that the outer cloak doubled as a poor man's bedding at night. So biblical law permitted that no one take the cloak, not even for ransom, overnight. The law protected that. So in that sense, the Old Testament law would protect you from having to surrender your cloak. So what does Jesus say? Not just your cloak, but what? Your inner garment as well. Obviously, Jesus is not teaching that somebody can be so absurd as to to demand you walk around naked. Understand his teaching. What he is saying is, you're going to go further in this dishonor. And you're not going to hold the law standard over people's head or over your own expectations and rights. You're actually going to, you're going to give up those rights. We surrender possession. As I was jotting notes down and meditating on this, I just wrote, we often value honor and things more than we value the kingdom That's the problem, and that's my problem. So Jesus moves from cloak to a mile. And it's interesting, Matthew would use uh, the Latin term for mile, probably deliberately saying that if a Roman comes and asks you, using their language, to not only go a mile, you go with them an extra mile. Because tax revenues did not fully support soldiers, They could requisition what they required and legally demand local citizens to provide labor. For instance, carrying their things for a mile. And what Jesus says is don't just grudgingly do that, but to show the love of Christ, do what? 
at the end of that mile, do what? Offer to go another mile. This is the greater righteousness. It doesn't restrict itself by law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. This is an exceeding righteousness. Judaism also recognized giving to beggars who requested alms, not as a legal obligation, but as a moral obligation. And so Jesus says, give to those who ask of you. Craig Keener said, one's vested interests must be in heaven, not on earth. If one cannot value the kingdom that much, one has no place in it. That's direct. Kingdom citizens, those truly following Jesus Christ, confess that there is no honor or property worth defending compared with the opportunity to show the love of God. How does the gospel speak into that piece of legal text? Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death. Did he deserve death? Do you know why he did not deserve death? He's the only human in the history of humanity who fully obeyed what? The law. He could have held the law up and said, I do not have to die. I have met my obligations as concerning the law. He didn't do that. He humbly, he humbly submitted himself to the point of death, even a cross kind of death, made himself in the image of a man and died. And you know, when we choose to follow him, when his spirit convicts us of our sin of unbelief and we believe and we follow, there is then given to us this internal lawfulness that we follow Jesus Christ because we desire to be like him. This brings us to our last of six references. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The rest of the text was already read for us this morning. This is Jesus' point. When we follow Jesus, we do not allow personal animosity, hurt, or prejudice to prevent acts of justice and kindness. If you fail to love your enemies, you are no different than this category of people that Jesus puts forward, tax collectors and Gentiles, which are classically two groups despised by Orthodox Jews, the first for working for Rome and collecting tribute, and the second because of their false religion. So this is, this is a Staggering accusation. If you only love those who love you, if you only like those who like you, if you only respect those who respect you, you're no different than unbelievers because that's exactly how they function. But I tell you, and maybe out of all the commands, this is the most difficult. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who was in heaven. When the lawyers tried to trap Jesus and ask him the greatest commandment, he said, love God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it. And what is it? To love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know the greatest proof that you truly love God rather than just religion? The greatest proof that you truly love God with an undivided heart is that you love those who don't like you. That you show sacrificial love to those who don't respect you or your family. And all of a sudden, you look godly because that is God-like character so that you can be called children of your Father who is in heaven. Romans 13.10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. 
And God says, I send the warmth and the health of sunshine on all, and I give the nourishment and refreshment of rain to all. Therefore, you should show mercy to all. And as a church, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing that? Is that the kind of love we are showing to each other, to this community, to our enemies? Here's the gospel. God loved us even when we were his enemies. Christ died for the people who only deserved judgment even while we were his enemies and were undesirable. Jesus died for those who falsely accused him, mocked him, spat upon him, punched him, ridiculed him, and unjustly crucified him. And towards the end of that whole process, he says this, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus not only died for his enemies, but he also became poor so that we might become rich. That's the gospel. And so he, he summarizes this whole thing. Look at verse 48. You therefore be perfect, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word means whole or mature. And again, you get to the end of these six legal texts, and what has Jesus led you to? A righteousness that is not our own, right? It points us to Christ. Jesus is pure and holy. Jesus keeps his word. Jesus is kind and does not retaliate. Jesus is the truth. Jesus loves his enemies and sacrificed himself for him. And when you call yourself a Christian, you are not saying I'm traditionally holding Judeo-Christian values. I'm moral. I'm a legalist. When you say you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're saying I have been transformed by the gospel. And therefore, I begin to look like him because I am a follower learner of him. And if none of this is true, if none of this even glimpses up into our hearts, then perhaps that's the answer we've been trying to ask. In conclusion, we understand that to preach Jesus in Nepal will disrupt Buddhist culture and Hindu culture. Matter of fact, to be born in the upper Himalayas is to be Buddhist. There's no distinction between religion and culture. It is to be Buddha. We understand that if you preach Jesus Christ there, it disrupts that culture. We also understand if you were to preach the gospel in Somalia, it would disrupt Muslim culture. But here's what we fail to understand. If you truly preach Jesus Christ in America, it will also disrupt American culture. Because what has happened is that we have folded sort of Christian teaching in with the American flag and with the right to bear arms and with apple pie and the observance of July 4th. And we kind of make it this one big package and we assume that's Christianity. And then what we fail to realize is when you come in and you preach Christ and him alone, it disrupts our culture too. a culture we have failed to discern is American or is it truly biblical? Last verse, the Apostle Paul writes, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray.